What is up, everyone? We are back with another episode of Shaping the Culture. And today, I, guys, I can't express how excited I am for today's episode. Um, I've been wanting this to happen for so long. Uh, we've got a special guest with us, author of the new book, Talking Back to Purity Culture. We've got Rachel Joy Welcher with us. How are you doing, Rachel? I'm doing great. <laughs> good to be here. Man, good to have you. Listen, I, uh, as I'm reading your book, I'm thinking to myself, I, I, I feel like I need hours with you to unpack everything that you talked about. And mm. so I just want to say thank you for uh, the research that you did, uh, the boldness that you had to write such on such a topic, mm. and the insight that you shared. I think it's powerful. And I've just been recommending this book to everyone and everyone I know. And so just thank you for your contributions uh, um, with this book. That's so encouraging. I really appreciate that. Yeah. So for those who may not know, you wrote a book on, uh, yeah, purity culture, uh, your response to what was uh, taught to us, uh, what was uh, preached from the pulpit, what was encouraged in youth groups, so on and so forth. And you you did a phenomenal job of understanding where we were at and, you know, maybe why some of the things that were taught were taught. But you also gave, um, I think, necessary critique um, and so I wanted to ask you, um, why, why did you write the book talking back to purity culture? What was your heart behind it? What was, uh, yeah, the reasonings for you to, to, to embark on this journey of writing this book? Well, I am not, there are people who've probably been more immersed in purity culture than I um, was, but I grew up as a pastor's kid and I read all the books, um, and it definitely became ingrained in me. Um, this idea that if I behaved properly, if I um, stayed a virgin, that I would get these gifts someday. Yeah. Um, and I never really realized that I was viewing my obedience as sort of an exchange of goods with God. But um, when I went on to follow all the rules and get married to a man I met at Bible college, and then five years into our marriage, he left me, mm -hmm. I was, I was left to, um, have to reevaluate why I believed what I believed and if it really had come from scripture. And so I think personally, that's where it started for me was saying like, okay, I didn't get the promises that I thought I was supposed to. Um, it has God failed me mm. or did I fall for a message that didn't actually come from him? Yeah. And so when I went back to school after my divorce, uh, I went to St. Andrews, I decided to really dig into the books of my youth. Mm -hmm. and look for the messages that were timelessly biblical, that were orthodox, and the ones that maybe had become sort of a warped uh, prosperity gospel, mm -hmm. you know, sort of like playing telephone, how uh, over the years, our message of purity took on mm -hmm. some baggage that wasn't biblical. And so that was really the goal was that I love the church, and I want us to always do better. And I think hindsight is twenty twenty. And so those who wrote these books had, I think most of them had the right motives, but we can always learn and grow from our past mistakes. And I think that the message of purity has to be, be more biblical moving forward. Yeah, no, that's so powerful. Uh, one of the aims and the, the name of this podcast is Shaping the Culture. And the heart mm. behind it is, you know, we wanted a platform where we looked at uh, the word of God and have that shape our culture. Because uh, we've let so many other subcultures within Christian culture uh, rob us of the truth of God. And so, and purity culture being one of them. Um, and so, yeah. 
Yeah, no, I love that so much. Well, in the book, you, uh, you start off talking about, yeah, virginity and purity and how uh, in a lot of ways, uh, we've kind of made those two words synonymous. They mean right. the same thing. To be a virgin is to be pure. Um, but you you talk about the dangers of that and uh, just the foolishness of that. And so I, I kind of wanted to ask you, why do you think we've done that? And what mm. purity? Can someone be pure and not a virgin? Like, how does that work? Right. Yeah. Oh, man. I think we are so prone to um, legalism and also finding ways around our man-made rules, right? So if we hold up something like virginity as the definition of purity, we can accomplish purity without having to actually be pure. Mm. And so I think that's one side of it is that as a, as a Christian growing up in the church and someone who followed the rules, it didn't mean that I wasn't struggling with lust in my heart, but I was able to view myself as pure um, and, and check all the boxes because I was a virgin. Yeah. And the other side of it is that there are those who have had their virginity stolen from them through abuse, or they've, uh, they are not virgins because they've sinned sexually and they need to know that they absolutely can pursue purity, even if they're not a virgin. And what, what I think purity culture rhetoric did is it made people who'd been sexually abused and sexual sinners feel permanently defeated. Mm. And then it made the rest of us feel like we had a little crown on our heads when we weren't actually sexually pure. We just managed to, you know, check off that one thing on the list. And so um, it's really not the right standard for purity. When Jesus says on his sermon on the Mount, if you look at someone with lust, you've committed adultery. So purity is way more all encompassing than virginity. And I think we've, we've reduced purity to one act and that's not biblical. And Mm that one act isn't, isn't the end of the road. Like if you're not a virgin, it doesn't mean that you're not pure because Jesus is the source of our purity. Yeah, no, that's so good. Well, that is encouraging because you do talk about how uh, our righteousness and our purity comes from Jesus, the finished work of Jesus. And um, in a lot of ways, like you've expressed in the book, we've, we've made uh, purity our identity. So if we haven't been pure, then we're not worthy of God's love. And if we've been pure, then we are somehow accepted and loved by God. Um, And that has led, as you expressed in the book, to so much shame, so much shame. Absolutely. And so I I just kind of wanted to, you know, maybe for someone who's listening and and they feel uh, like God is, you know, frustrated with them or upset with them, like what message should they believe? Is it is it that purity is what grants them the love of God? Or is it the, the purity that Jesus gives us that, uh, gives us the right standing with God? I love that question. I mean, I think that this reveals uh, how we view salvation, right? I mean, we really fall into this works-based righteousness when we think that our level of sexual purity is what gains us favor with God. Mm-hmm. The truth is, I mean, look at scripture, the characters in scripture, not all of them were virgins. Not all of them were sexually pure. In fact, I would argue that no, none of us are, yeah. that we've all fallen. Um, the gospel is that we are saved in our sin and from our sin. It's the sick who need a healer. And so what I would say to those dealing with shame is that our shame is only good when it leads us to Christ. And it's bad when it weighs us down and makes us feel like we can't look at him because he is asking us to look and see him. He made the sacrifice. He has atoned for our sin and he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So 
your worth does not go up and down with how successful you've been with sexual purity. Your worth stays the same. You're an image bearer of a holy God. That's so good. I love that. That's beautiful. Um, as I was reading your book, so I, I'm going to confess some things. So uh, up until I think I was in college, um, yeah, I just believed the lie that women didn't struggle <laughs> right. at temp sexual temptation, um, that this was a man's struggle. Um, this was the fight for men. It wasn't the fight for women. And in reading your book, you know, you just beautifully unpacked how that is a lie and that women are also mm -hmm. se sexual beings. It's not just men that are sexual beings. And so right. you debunked that whole, whole myth. Um, and I wanted to ask you, why do you think we've, we've believed the lie? Like, where does this come from? As I know I'm not the only one. Um, right. But where does this come from, this idea that women aren't sexual beings, that women do right. not struggle with lust or don't desire for sex, so on and so forth? Right. I mean, I think it's a complicated answer to a really good question, because as far as modern purity culture goes, if you look at the books, when I studied the books, the ones written for men were all about lust mm -hmm. and the ones written for women were all about how to become a good wife. Wow. And so what, what women were taught was that we don't struggle sexually. I mean, it addressed it occasionally, but that our main struggle is how much we want marriage mm -hmm. and that men's main struggle is how much they want sex. Yeah. And so I think men grew up believing that women want marriage and men want sex and women grew up thinking, okay, if I'm a sexual being, then I'm kind of a mm -hmm. pervert basically. Um, because wow. men were being talked to, I remember in Christian schools and college and conferences, they'd split the men and women up yeah. and the men would talk about pornography and masturbation and the women would talk about what you should and shouldn't wear. Yeah. I mean, I think yeah. that really reveals how we've stereotyped men and women. The truth is when you look at scripture, mm. while men and women are different, we are both created sexual beings for the glory of God. We're both created sexual beings for enjoyment in marriage. So it's, sex isn't just for men in marriage. That's a whole nother topic that purity culture is skewed, but also women struggle with lust too. Mm -hmm. And I think that we let ourselves off the hook by saying, well, we struggle differently than men. So it's not the same. Mm -hmm. um, and we have not dignified men or women in this conversation. Mm -hmm. um, the other answer is that historically treating women as morally superior is a way of controlling women. So to say that women don't struggle with lust means that they become the guardians of purity for both genders. Yeah. And that might sound like you're saying women are great, but you're really saying that women are responsible for what men do to them. Yeah. yeah. And that gets real dangerous. Yeah. yeah. No, I remember you were unpacking that in the chapter where you talked about abuse and how purity culture right. has led into that. Yeah. Unpack that a little bit. How, how has this idea that women are the guardians of purity culture led right. to blaming women for a lot of the, the mistakes that men have made and a lot of the things right. that they've done that they shouldn't have done. I, I remember reading the book how you were saying, um, yeah, depending on how far women will uh, allow for something to go, the men will go that far. Uh, you'll never see the case, well, I, I shouldn't say never, but you don't see cases where men um, know the limit and draw the line. They just kind of wait until the woman says, this is too far for me to kind of stop. Well, and I think it's been a self-fulfilling prophecy because men have been taught that they are like these sexual animals that they have to constantly be on guard so much so that it's not worth even pursuing self-control. You just have to avoid women or they become a sexual outlet in marriage. There's no like relationship with women as sisters, but 
Um, I think when we talk about women as morally superior, which is unbiblical, um, what we do is we say that if a couple goes too far, Mm -hmm. then it was the woman's job, like you said, to stop it. Um, And so the man is let off the hook, which scripture doesn't do. And the woman is not only, um, you know, she's not only culpable for her own sin, if she sinned, but she's culpable for what the man has done. Mm -hmm. This gets really complicated when it comes to sexual abuse, because even in churches, you in Christian schools and Christian colleges, you hear rape culture rhetoric, like you shouldn't have been flirting with him. And that's why he did this to you because he thought you, you know, wanted him to, or you shouldn't have been at that party. You shouldn't have worn that outfit, that outfit, you know, triggered something in him and he couldn't stop. Um, and so we have really undignified men and women with this rhetoric. We've depicted men as though they can't have self-control at a certain point, which is not true. I remember I even asked the men I interviewed for this book. I said, is it true that like you reach a point sexually where you can't stop? Like if a gun was to your head, you really couldn't stop. And they said, no, of course that's not true, but that is what we were taught. And so you get that in your head and you think, well, the woman's got to stop it. Um, if it's going to stop and I'm just going to go as far as I can, that's not biblical. That's not loving. And that's not taking responsibility for our own actions before God. Yeah, that's absolutely right. That's so good. You, you, you touched on the, you know, one of the things that we shame women for is how they dress and maybe mm. things wouldn't have gone as far if they had dressed differently. Maybe their, the way their attire was inviting or what have you. Right. Um, I've had a lot of different women reach out to me to, uh, and this is even before your book came out, asking if we could do an episode just talking about, mm. uh, yeah, just modesty um, and how that has, yeah, like for, for whatever reason, it's just been abused and we haven't taught it well and we've left right. people confused. And, and so I thought you did a fantastic job talking about what modesty actually looks like and the mm. way you broke down first Timothy and, uh, what it is that, um, God is actually calling us to. And so I kind of wanted to ask if you can break that down for us on the podcast, what is modesty, what is dressing modestly? And uh, what should be healthy expectations for both men and women and why we shouldn't put it always on the women? Right. I mean, this, this is the issue that people want to talk about. It's really interesting. And I think it's because this is where purity culture really became a tangible way of shaming women. Um, You know, uh, the classic example is that at a Christian camp, uh, the men, the young boys can wear no shirt to the pool and the women have to wear a shirt over their bathing suit um, as though men are the only ones who are sexual um, or visual and as though women's bodies are sinful. Um, And I think that's, that's where women, Christian women are really struggling is that they're trying to figure out how can I honor my brothers and sisters and how I dress without feeling like it's my body itself that is wrong. Um, and what really happened with the modesty rhetoric is there was such an emphasis placed on, it's all about how we dress that controls how men respond, that men didn't have to practice self-control because the women around them were expected to cover up. Yeah. And women began to feel as though their beauty was the problem rather than, um, you know, it being a heart issue. So in scripture, there's definitely passages that talk about um, dressing modestly. It's actually usually referring to not flaunting your wealth um, or drawing attention. But regardless, I think that there's two things we have to think about in the modesty conversation. One is that we always want to deal with the heart because Jesus looks at the heart and it doesn't, it doesn't mean that it doesn't matter what we wear, but you start there. So 
My example is uh, a young woman walks into your church. She doesn't know anything about what it means to be a Christian, but she wants to hear the gospel and maybe she's not wearing the right dress. The first thing we say to her shouldn't be that you need to change. The first thing that we say to her should be, have you heard about Jesus? And, And here's some coffee. And so I think we have to get our priorities straight. Modesty might be something that comes along with spiritual maturity. Um, and the other thing is that modesty is all about your cultural context. So we can't draw lines in the sand and say that this is modesty everywhere in the world. You know, missionaries know that it completely depends on the context. And so to, to learn what is modesty in the context you're in is a way to love other people. And, and so I think we have to make sure that we're not looking at other people and saying, you know, he or she is trying to cause someone to stumble. Maybe they're not. And if you stumble, that's on you. So it's also about us taking responsibility for our actions. It's selfish to wear an outfit because you want to cause someone else to sin. But if that person sins, that was their choice. choice. And that matters, you know? That's so good. Yeah. One of the the fruit of the spirit is self-control. And right. Like you said we have, in what for whatever reason, absolved the men of the responsibility to practice self-control. And so, right. no, no, that was really encouraging. And now that, that was my experience going to camp uh, every summer. The men could, you know, have their shirts off. The yep. women would have to put a t-shirt or would have to wear one piece. Yep. Uh, things of that nature. And so, no, yeah, that that's so real. Th- there's something you said uh, in the book, and and you alluded to it in your answer too about how. At some point, the problem isn't necessarily how one dresses, but the, their, their body itself or their beauty. Itself. And uh, that could be very harmful. And so I love that you broke it down like that. Um, so good. Speaking to that and continuing in that um, thought process, you know, uh, growing up, we were also taught that if you want to avoid uh, sexual sin, avoid women altogether. Right, right. Yeah. So, you know, even till this day, you hear it, you know, I, I, I serve as a, as a pastor as well. We're a young church plant. And a lot of the advice is given, you know, don't be alone with a woman one on one. Even if you're in a public setting, uh, right. you never know what will happen. And uh, I, I understand the sentiment. But I think you did a good job of talking about why that actually is dehumanizing women and how we are taught to avoid instead of actually viewing our sisters as sisters. Like, I think the way you broke it down was we should be looking, it's how we view women. It's how we view um, the, the, yeah, our, our sisters. And so uh, talk to us about why it's dangerous to avoid women and why the call is to really see them rightly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I noticed in the books um, that I studied that were written for men during the purity culture era, that was the advice was look away from women and the problem will be solved. And what's so sad about that is that God clearly knew that we needed one another. And scripture says that we are supposed to treat each other as brothers and sisters, as mothers and fathers um, in all purity. And so we are disobeying scripture when we solve our lust just by treating the other gender as though they are just a walking temptation Mm -hmm. that is dehumanizing and it doesn't fix the problem, right? Because the, the truce, the true fix is to view men and women rightly. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what I say in my book is instead of looking away, look at them correctly, look at them as sisters. And I, I think what I'm not saying is that if you're in a position where you're really struggling with sexual temptation, that you shouldn't ever run like Joseph did away from Potiphar's wife. That's not what I'm saying. There are absolutely situations where you know your own limitations, 
But the goal should always be that you're working toward humanizing the other person, not just avoiding them because that's not loving. That's not biblical. And so, and that's immaturity. So if, if the way you've solved lust so far is just by running, I think it's really worth um, asking yourself how you can get to a place where you view people with enough dignity that you can look at them without treating them as a sexual object. Yeah, no, that's so profound. So good. Um, for those who are maybe listening to this and, you know, maybe this is new language for them, you know, their whole life they've been told you must avoid, you must avoid. Do you have a practical next step or a first step to seeing, um, seeing women correctly, seeing others in the, in the image of God? Mm, that is a really good question. I'm trying to think, I mean, one of the, one of the things I focus on in my book is that if you're going to read my book or any book, you should read it in community. And what I don't mean is just read it with your women's Bible study or your men's Bible study. That's okay. Um, And you'll have really unique, specific conversations that way. But I wrote the book to be studied in um, mixed uh, gender, you know, settings and just diverse settings. You know, I pictured a widow and a teenager, um, someone who's struggling with same-sex attraction and a married couple, just all of us realizing that we all have unmet longings. We all have struggles. We can pray for one another. I think there's this misunderstanding that talking about sex is always sexy. Mm. It absolutely doesn't have to be. And anyone who reads my book and walks away with this idea that we're supposed to just share all our fantasy, that's not at all the point of my book. The point of my book is that we can lay our burdens down as humans who are all created, um, we all have sexuality. It's a God created good. So we have that in common and it manifests itself in different ways, different phases of life, different relationships. And so I think there's a way that we can talk about those things that honors God, that is pure and not, you know, sexy or titillating, but that creates this common, um, it creates unity that we are all in the same fight together. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And, you know, um, one, one thing that you also do so well in the book is you talk about the difference between sexuality and sexual sin. Right. How because we're not having these conversations, because we're not open, because mm-hmm. we're not sitting down in our churches or in our small groups or what have you to discuss our longings that are God given. Like, I, I love how you talked about sex as a good gift from God. And, you know, to be honest, I was, you know, I grew up believing that sex is evil. And then, you know, one day in marriage will be beautiful, but yeah, the way we're taught to avoid sexual temptation is by looking at it as evil. And that's just contrary to the word of God. But along the lines of what you're talking about, you know, in the book, you talked about how there have been some women who um, have fallen into pornography simply because they haven't had the safe space to talk about these things. And so talk about why sexuality should not be a sin and it's different than sexual sin and that we should own that, that we're sexual beings. This is how God has designed us and we shouldn't apologize for that. Right. As a high school teacher, I do remember multiple female students saying that their introduction to pornography was just researching things that they didn't feel like they could ask out loud because they were Christian women. Um, And their questions started out as completely understandable questions that um, there's nothing wrong with those things. Um, And so I would say to parents listening and youth leaders, you know, you might think your kids aren't ready to talk about certain things, but if they ask, asked if they answer or you shame them for wondering they're going to go to another source. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think that's something worth considering, but 
sexuality, we have to return to a biblical view of sexuality, which is that it existed before the fall, right? Sex existed before the fall. It wasn't the first temptation, <laughs> which, um, you know, some movies and um, fiction depict sex as the first temptation. Um, but we know that it was part of God's plan from the very beginning. And sexual sin is a distortion of that. And yeah. so I think it is very important for us to untangle um, sexual sin from sexuality. And one of the things I say in my book is that we need to teach our children to expect their sexuality so that it doesn't take them by surprise, you know, let them know these are some things that you might experience. I mean, everyone has different, um, experiences of sexuality. Um, we're not all the same, but for them to know that it's coming and that it's okay, um, to have these longings, their God-given longings, it's what we do with them that can be sinful or not. Yeah. Um, and just to remind them that there's so much grace when we do fall, because every single one of us is a sexual sinner. And if we treat our children as though they're never going to sin in that way, they're not going to tell you, and they're not going to ask for prayer. And they're not going to be honest because they don't want to, um, you know, feel like you disapprove of them, but for us to expect their sexuality, expect that they're going to stumble in that area, just like every other area. And to constantly remind them that there's forgiveness and new mercies every morning. Yeah, yeah, it's good. I, I love that. And that that gave me so much encouragement when you were talking about that in the book, because um, I think in a lot of church culture, um, sexual sin is almost this unforgivable sin, right? That if, if you do this, then, you know, there's no way you can get in right standing with God and mm -hmm. um, God is just done with you. And so I love how you talk about how there's forgiveness and his mercies are new and his arms aren't too short to save. And that's right. Right. To do. Yeah. Amen. I love it. Um, I love it. I, yeah. So here's another lie that I believed growing up. Uh, and here's the thing. So I, uh, I grew up, I'm Ethiopian and I grew up in the Ethiopian church okay. and as I was reading your book, I didn't realize how much the Ethiopian church had been impacted by purity culture. Uh, I was like, right. what is going on? There's so many similarities here. And so, um, yeah, purity culture has seeped into Ethiopian churches as well. Um, but one of the things that's taught is, yeah, if you stay pure, if you do your best to not have sex before marriage, actually, it wasn't about purity, it was about virginity. If you don't have sex, uh, before marriage, as soon as you get married, then you will have the best sex of your life. Right, right. And you will have unlimited amounts of sex and it'll just be <laughs> this utopia. Marriage will be this utopia. And that's not the reality um, at all. And so, you know, we've kind of bought into this sexual prosperity gospel that if I do this, then God will grant me that. Um, talk about why that's so harmful, Ooh. why that's dangerous and why that's not biblical. Oh man. Yeah. I think that's been one of the most damaging lies. And we see our generation now getting married, getting divorced, experiencing things and saying, Hey, I was lied to. Mm -hmm. And I think what's really hard is that you see some of them say, God lied to me mm -hmm. when we know that that didn't come from scripture, but they got it from the church or from youth group or a Christian book. And so they're equating the two. Um, so it is really vital that we as a church delve into this message and um, talk about it and, and even take ownership over the fact that we have been responsible in spreading it. I think what happened during the purity movement is that um, parents and youth leaders so badly wanted their kids to avoid STDs and teen pregnancy that they tried to dangle some carrots in front of them. So it wasn't enough to just say, stay pure for God's glory. 
Mm. Um, they had to say, stay pure and you'll get things. Mm. Um, and so then this prosperity gospel within purity culture developed. And you see over and over again in the books that there's this subtle promise that if you stay pure, you will get married. Yeah. So singles are frustrated now because they're like, I did everything right and I'm still single. Yeah. Um, or you'll get married and have amazing sex. And I can't tell you how many women I talked to who struggled with painful sex in marriage. Um, and that was just like shattering because they had no idea. Or people who felt like things would go perfectly from night one mm. and didn't even hadn't even learned that sometimes it takes some time to develop that. It takes years to develop that relationship. Mm. Um and to learn each other in that way. And that that's actually part of the beauty of marriage. But now we look at it as frustration because we were taught that it would be easy and simple from day one to be ended with married sex, which is so sad because it's such a beautiful, good gift. Um, and the only reason that they're disappointed is because the expectations we painted for them were unbiblical. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You even alluded how, you know, Justin Bieber in a, in an interview talked right. about you know, he has this great marriage now because he committed himself to, right. yeah, and you just see it all over. It's uh, everywhere. Yeah, it's, it's everywhere. Uh, what is a better way of communicating um, purity? Like why, like the reward for purity shouldn't be a great marriage. It should be that we see God, you know, that we, right, that's it. Yeah, that purity isn't, yeah, sometimes like you said in the book, we make um, God the means to an end and not right. necessarily the end itself. And right. so for someone who's listening here and you know they've kind of been <laughs> duped into believing this lie, uh, how would you encourage them to think rightly about why we must be pure and how purity doesn't promise us a great marriage or a great sex life in marriage? Well, I think one of the things that's so hard about the Christian life is that obedience does not mean freedom from suffering. Yeah. But we know that there's so much to come, so much good, and that every tear will be wiped from our eyes. There is a future that is perfect coming for those who are in Christ. And so we have everything to look forward to. But here on earth, our obedience is a form of worship to God. Mm -hmm. And it is not, it's a, it's a response to what he's already given us. So he's already given us the promise of salvation. He has drawn us into his family. Those are the gifts that you are promised. And they are they're not going to change based on if you fail today. Um, and I think that's so beautiful is that even if you do mess up sexually, if you're in Christ, then you still get to see him when yeah. you die. And so it's actually a better gift than purity culture depicted. But we have to remember that doing things right doesn't mean that we're earned marriage or that we deserve great sex. And it could be that God wants to draw, draw you close in a different way as a single or as someone who's divorced. And those are very difficult callings, but God promises to be with you. That's so good. Yeah. We, um, um, you know, at, at our church, at Parazim church, we, uh, we spent 10 weeks, you know, we had a series called cuffing season and because we're a young church, we've got a lot of young people. Sure. Huh? Sorry. I said, sure. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> So out of those 10 weeks, we spent seven weeks talking about singleness. And what we actually did is we went through Sam Albury's book, The Seven Myths of Singleness. Yes. And yeah. You alluded to him in your book as well. And yeah, just this idea in purity culture that, you know, marriage is the goal, you know, that marriage is this prize in life that you are fulfilled and complete once you have a spouse and you have your beautiful kids. And that's also a lie that we've bought into. 
uh, and we don't consider the same sex attracted. We don't right. consider the widowed. We don't consider uh, so many different people. And so I wanted to ask you, uh, how should we see singleness rightly, like uh, biblically, so that we don't make marriage the end all be all. But, and, and you said this in the book, marriage is not a promise. It's a gift. You know, it's a gift. Right. And so, but for some reason we've made marriage a promise and we've devalued singleness. And like you said, they both serve different purposes, but they're also both good in their own ways. Right. Oh man. I mean, when we read scripture, we see that singleness has value and it's interesting that we've veered so far from that, that we've put marriage um, and the nuclear family on a pedestal in our churches. So many singles will say they just don't feel like they have a place. Um, They're treated as though they can't be spiritually mature or have anything to offer until they get married, which of course is not true. Um, And so I think we have to change the way we view it, that being single is a high calling. Um, it might not last your whole life or it might, but some of my heroes of the faith, Rich Mullins, um, Amy Carmichael, you know, were lifelong singles and they did so much for the Lord. And I think that I don't want to, I don't want to (laughs) dismiss, excuse me, dismiss the loneliness that is true suffering for singles. I've been single two different times in my life, you know, after my divorce, (laughs) excuse me. And before, yeah. It truly is a form of suffering to struggle with loneliness, but marrieds also struggle with loneliness as well. And when it comes to sexual purity, the finish line isn't marriage. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a, it's a misnomer that, that sexual purity is only something that singles have to pursue. Mm-hmm. We have to pursue sexual purity no matter where we're at. That's why I want us to read books like mine and others together and to see that we have a lot more in common. Um, I love singles. I think that they enrich the church and that they should be in leadership and not at the margins. Yeah, no, that's so good. I, um, yeah, there, there's so much to be said there. So much to be said there. But yeah. one of the things that you also talked about is how, yeah, if, if we don't know how to be pure in our singleness, then we will struggle in purity when we're married. That there, it's, it's a lie that, you know, I won't struggle with you know, purity once I'm, once I'm married, but it even speaks to how in this season of singleness, and it might not be a a season for some, this might be the call that God has for us, but we can learn how to control. So we we can learn how to control our urges and submit that to Jesus and trust in him and believe that he's enough and better than, uh, because that's not going to be any different when you're married that, you know, I, I think you were talking about in the book, how some, some were surprised that after they got married, that they were even still attracted to other men or to other women. And so, yeah, no, I love that. I love that. Uh, I love this conversation. We could spend so much more yep. time here, <laughs> uh, but I, I know you're busy and I won't take too much more of your time. Um, the way you wrap up the book is encouraging. Um, I know you were critiquing purity culture, but you weren't uh, critiquing purity. No. You know, the call still remains that we must be pure as believers. And uh, I think you did um, a phenomenal job talking about how that's so countercultural and that it's so radical and different from the way the world goes about it. And so, and you described it as traveling on the narrow road, that this isn't, you know, this isn't going to be a popular uh, route. No. This is not going to be something that's celebrated in mainstream 
culture. And so I wanted to ask you, um, why is purity important? And why is that still the call, even though we don't subscribe to all of purity culture? <laughs> Gosh, that is the question. Um, I think that anytime we lay our life down and pick up the cross of Christ, it's going to be countercultural. Mm. And we have to be ready for the fact that people will think that we are um, suppressing our desires in an unhealthy way or that we are, we've been duped by religion. Um, you'll hear it all, or that you're unloving for thinking that sex belongs in marriage between one man and one woman. That's not a popular message anymore and um, probably won't ever be again. And so mm. we have to prepare ourselves for the fact that honoring and loving God means that we will not be popular and mm. that it, that's okay, that we are servants of Christ, that purity is, like I said, it's, it's a way to worship God for what he's already done. Yeah. He is the source of our purity and we get to pursue purity however imperfectly, um, out of worship and gratefulness to what he's already done. Yeah, that's so good. For those who are tuning in right now, what would be your last word of encouragement, maybe a challenge? Um, mm. what, what would you say to those that have been, yeah, that have grown up in this phenomenon we call purity culture and that want to honor God, genuinely want to honor God with their lives? Like what would be your maybe encouragement or challenge to them as we wrap up? If you've fallen off the wagon, whatever wagon it is, um, you can get back on by the grace of Christ and his mercies are new every morning and there's always forgiveness at the cross. Mm, it's beautiful. Well, thank you so much. Talking back to Purity Culture, Rachel Joy Welcher, where can they get this book? I, they need to read this. This is, <laughs> if, they, if you've enjoyed this conversation, we only scratched the surface. There's That's so true. That's true. Um, <laughs> you can get it anywhere. Uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, InterVarsity Press's website sometimes has good deals. So I would be honored if you would read it and if you'd read it with others in community. Yeah. So good. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank, thank you, you for your wisdom. Uh, this was a great blessing to me and a great honor to have you on the podcast. Uh, to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. And until next time, family, peace and grace.